welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a special episode. This episode was recorded on Sunday, May 23rd, 2021, sponsored by Adult Formation, an educational lawsuit informational meeting led by the Public Interest Law Center. This episode is a recording from our Zoom conversation. Yeah, as I said, this is about a lawsuit taking on uh, Pennsylvania's um, deeply inequitable and inadequate school funding system. Um, and Dan, uh, my colleague, Dan Rebecca-Gackersberg, is one of the attorneys bringing the lawsuit. He'll talk about how this system came about, the kind of key facts that really um, make it um, the way it is inadequate and inequitable, and the lawsuit that is uh, seeking to change the system, and how uh, folks from across the state can get involved in supporting strong public schools. Um, so I'll turn it over to Dan for the presentation. And oh, sorry, one quick note on Q&A. If you have questions during the presentation, you can put them in the chat and I may be able to answer some of them. And afterwards, we will have a Q&A where you will be able to unmute yourself and be called on to ask questions. So uh, Dan, take it away. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Uh, and thank you, um, Alex. And thanks everybody for coming out. Uh, now we're counter-programming my Philadelphia 76ers, so I really appreciate it. No one tell me the score. <laughs> um, so um, the, the, the way that this is going to work is um, the presentation is going to talk to you about a lawsuit that, that is coming down the pike, a trial that's coming down the pike. But um, I think to understand the lawsuit, you first have to understand the problem. And so the way that we've structured this um, presentation is the first half or even a little bit longer, is going to walk you through what's wrong with the way that Pennsylvania funds its public schools. And then I'll talk to you a little bit about the lawsuit that's um, hopefully going to bring about some change to that. Um, I, I will talk for probably about 40 minutes or so and leave plenty of time for questions and answers and discussion. Um, as Jonathan said, if you have any questions, just type them in the chat. Um, if I see them pop up and I know the answer right away, I'll, I'll just, um, I will uh, answer them then. Um, so um, just a little bit um, about our organization. Um, so at the, Pub the Public Interest Law Center is a small um, impact litigation law firm. Um, we um, use high impact legal, legal strategies um, to advance the social, uh, civil, social, and economic rights of communities in our region and our state. Um, <clears throat> we do that through a number of of avenues, including policy advocacy, community education, organizing, um, but we are um, at heart um, litigators. And so the, the single biggest tool in our toolbox is the threat for the bringing of litigation. Um, we are an organization that was started um, as part of the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law. Um, that was an organization formed in the 1960s when um, um, John Kennedy and, and Bobby Kennedy um, sought lawyers to help protect um, the, the, um, the rights of voters in the South. And so there were literally lawyers committees from bar associations, um, lawyers committees for civil rights um, that started. Um, there is still a national lawyers committee and there are a number of affiliates around the country um, well, one of which is, is our organization. Um, we still do voting work. Um, so our organization is the 
um, the law firm that brought down um, Pennsylvania's gerrymandered political maps in 2018. Um, we also work across a number of other areas, healthcare, housing, employment, environmental justice, and public education. Um, <clears throat> so the way I'd like to start this is to just to give some some baseline, what, a couple of baseline facts um, that, that I think are pretty crazy. So um, the first is really, it's an article, it's a headline, all right? A headline that now looks so familiar, right? As coronavirus closes schools, wealthier districts send home laptops home with students, what about poorer districts, right? And we've all seen this inequality in the last um, 16 months, it's been in our face. Um, you know, that, that kids from lower wealth school districts um, often were using paper and pencil handouts for months on end, sometimes even into um, this school year, um, while um, wealthier school districts could um, quickly transition into virtual learning. Not that virtual learning is perfect by any means, but, um, but they could make that transition fast, right? So this is a familiar story. What I think is really amazing um, is this. This is a story from March 18th, 2020. The first day schools were closed in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania because of COVID was March 16th, 2020, Monday, March 16th. By, by Wednesday, March 18th, the fissures and fractures in our society were so self-evident that they're on the front page of the inquiry, right? Two days after this crisis started, the vast inequality and the, the impact that was going to have on poor kids in Pennsylvania was so evident that the inquiry already had a story on it, right? Because the fault lines in our society, they are in plain view for all to see. Um, and, then, and then a couple of, a couple of quotes. Um, so who said this? Pennsylvania has significant financial inequities in its system of school funding with one of the largest gaps of any state in the country in per child spending between the Commonwealth's poorest and wealthiest districts. Right, so huge gaps of funding going in, the resources going in, that's quote one. And then the Commonwealth also has some of the most significant reading achievement gaps between low-income students and students of color and their white, more affluent peers. Similar gaps are evident with respect to high school graduation rates. So the resources going in, huge gaps, the outcomes on the back end, huge gaps, right? Now, who said that? Is that, a, is that a, a report authored by an advocacy organization, you know, our organization, PCCY, education voters? No. It's the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania itself. That's from the state's ESSA plan, Every Student Succeeds Act, Succeeds Act um, in August of 2019. And so when we go through this, the stuff we're going to talk about today, the thing you have to remember is virtually all of this is just publicly available information. I'm not giving you any secrets. All we're doing is just sort of bringing down public information and showing you what the state largely admits about Pennsylvania schools. Um, in terms of themes, what is wrong? Well, the first is that in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, there is no goal of fully funding public schools, not at the state level. It's not as if the legislature starts each year by saying, hey, what do schools need this year? And how are we going to fund it? Or, you know, what, what should... Um, what's the outcomes we want? How many kids do we want to go to college in Pennsylvania? And how much resources do we need to put in K through 12 to make that happen, right? That conversation does not happen. It does happen at the local level, at the school board level, if your district can afford to have it. If your district can afford to have that conversation, the superintendent 
goes to the board each year and says, this is the plan that I would like for my school district, right? These are the resources our kids need. But if you're a low wealth school district, you, you can't do that because you don't get, your superintendents don't get to identify what they need for that year. They get to identify what they can afford for that year, right? Um, and that all stems from the top, that the legislature has no goal of fully funding public schools. It's an abdication of their constitutional duty. We'll get into the constitution, but that is the fundamental problem to all of this. Second and related, there's a relatively low contribution to education. Jonathan talked about this. The state of Pennsylvania is heavily reliant on local taxes to fund its schools. And we're a heavily economically segregated state. I'll show you how that plays out in Delaware County. Um, the third is that the vast majority of our funding is not based on any rational formula on what school districts actually need. And the fourth, when you put it all together, writ large, in Pennsylvania, low wealth communities need the most, try the hardest, but have the least. So I'll go through all of those um, in the next few minutes. Um, so Jonathan said we're, we're heavily relying on local, on local um, sources of funding for our public schools. Here's how we look by that metric compared to the country. So um, compared to, to, to the rest of the states in the country. So um, what you're looking at is a bar chart. Every, every uh, state is uh, a bar. And you're looking at within, within that state of all the money spent on K through, K through 12 education, how much of it comes from um, the state itself versus local taxpayers. And um, almost every year, Pennsylvania ranks around 45th, 44th, 47th in the contribution to, um, to public education. And, um, and so what that means is, again, we're just heavily reliant on the local wealth of taxpayers. And here's how that plays out in Delaware County. And actually, you know, this is a Delaware County presentation, but I like to give Delaware County as really a good example because Delaware County has you know, a lot of high wealth and low wealth communities living really close to each other. So a fairly compact county. Let me explain what all of this means, all right? So um, you see every school district in Delaware County here. Um, the, the first num set of numbers, the first um, column is the estimated tax burden, um, the effective tax rate, property tax rate, in those school districts. And, and so how you get that, this won't look like your actual tax, your, your actual tax rate, which is often not based on the actual value of your property and there's a complicated millage rate, but the state of Pennsylvania itself um, needs a way to standardize what they think the effective tax rate is in each school district. So they have a board that looks at the act, what they think are the actual values of your properties. And then that board looks to see how much you're actually contributing to public schools. And then the state comes up with an effective tax rate for each school district around the state. And it's called equalized mills. And so how you get there is, if you look at the top of the Marble Newtown School District, tax, tax burden 13.3 equalized mills, divide that by 10. And that's what they, the state thinks the effective property tax rate is. So we're in Radnor. Um, tax burden, 15 equalized mills. The state thinks Radnor taxpayers pay about 1.5% of the value of their property each year in school taxes, right? And just within this county, from the top down to the bottom, you see a huge variation in tax rates, right? So Radnor, 15 equalized mills. The William Penn School District, all the way at the bottom, 35 equalized mills. 
right? A huge variation just in Delaware County. Um, and you know, that's, I think, problematic in general. Swarthmore is a little bit of an exception to the overall trend of low wealth districts paying high taxes because Swarthmore actually has a high tax rate, presumably because of, of the college and not having a huge, you know, a huge taxable base in, in, um, in Swarthmore itself. Um, but in general, when you look at the districts that are paying the highest taxes in this county, it's just like the rest of the state, which is the lowest wealth districts pay the highest effective tax rate. And that's a problem. But the real crux of the problem is the next column over, which is how much funding is generated from that tax rate. So go back to Radnor. Radnor taxes at 15 equalized bills, 1.5% of the value of their property. And they generate just locally close to 22 thousand dollars per child right but look at the two look at the two on the bottom southeast delco and the william penn school district taxing at 33 equalized mills and 35 equalized mills and they each generate they don't generate twenty two thousand dollars they generate about nine thousand dollars because they just simply don't have the wealth right and this story is told over and over and over in pennsylvania which is that low wealth communities try harder but have less um, so um, here's how that plays out. Look at um, uh, Radnor versus Upper Darby, right? Um, so Radnor taxes at a rate of 15 equalized mills, as I said, generates $22,000. Now the state kicks in about $4,000 to Radnor. Um, and so state and local combined, they have close to $26,000 per cap. Um, Upper Darby was on that chart. Um, they tax at a rate of about 29 equalized mills, so almost twice what Radnor taxes, right? But instead of $22,000, they generate $8,200, right? And the state does give more to Upper Darby than to Radnor, right? So the state gives Upper Darby $6,500 per child. But it's not nearly enough to close these gaps, right? So um, state and local resources, or when you add in federal funding, I think this actually includes federal funding, the difference is um, $10,800 per child, 70% more in Radnor versus Upper Darby, right? Well, and that also, that's bad, right? But which district actually needs more? Right, the easiest way that um, an education policy person would tell you, uh, or an educational professional would tell you to, to, to tell you what are the needs of the district is just look at the percentage of kids in poverty. That's the, the, the simplest way. Um, in Radnor, 10% or 10.7% of students are classified as economically disadvantaged. Um, in Upper Darby, with far less funding, it's 61%, right? Um, another resource needed group of kids are kids that are learning English, right? You're learning English by definition and by law, and you need small class sizes. You need, you need, you need, um, you need um, to be brought along so that you can learn English, right? So in Radnor, it's 3.4% of students. And in Upper Darby, it's 10% of students, right? And so the, the problem with Pennsylvania is not just that, you know, that low wealth communities pay more. It's not just that low wealth communities pay more and get less. It's that low wealth communities generally also need more, right? So they're getting less, they're trying harder, but they need more. Um, so how did we get here? So um, in um, 1991, Leading up to 1991, Pennsylvania actually had a school funding formula, um, and um, largely based on, um, on on wealth and and poverty in the district. 
Um, and then in 1991, everything froze, right? And how Pennsylvania viewed your district froze in time. So then what happened from 1991 all the way to 2015, with the exception of three years in the middle, is that um, uh, how, it, how a school district was funded was basically what you got in 1991 versus plus 1%. What you got in 1991 plus 2%. And it just built on itself. So it, was always, it wasn't based on the demographics any longer of your school district. It was just based on what you got in 1991. And then it was just building upon this edifice, right? Over and over and over and over and over, we were basing our school funding decisions on what you got in 1991. Um, a lot has changed in the world since 1991, right? So in 1991, Mikhail Gorbachev was finishing his final few months um, as the premier of the Soviet Union. There still was, very briefly, in 1991, a Soviet Union. George H.W. Bush was president. Barack Obama was um, head of Harvard Law Review. And LeBron James was eight years old. Like, the world has changed a lot since 1991. But Pennsylvania was just stuck looking at districts the same as if they're 1991. And you know, think about Upper Darby. How much has Upper Darby changed since 1991, right? But according to Pennsylvania, just frozen and largely frozen in time. Um, the other thing that happened in the late 1990s is there was a lot of complaints about this system and there was various pieces of litigation that were filed against the state for the way it funded public schools. Um, so there was a state, there was a, um, there was a case brought by an organization called the Pennsylvania Association of Rural and Small Schools. Um, there was a case, um, there was uh, under the Pennsylvania Constitution saying that Pennsylvania schools are underfunded. There was a case brought by the School District of Philadelphia saying Pennsylvania schools are underfunded. Um, there was also a race discrimination case brought um, by the city of Philadelphia against the state of Pennsylvania um, for um, disparate impact on children of color of our school funding system. Um, However, one by one by one, all those cases failed. Um, and um, there was two cases in state court about the adequacy of funding. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, you know, we as a court can't actually determine how much kids need. That's really a policy decision. And so um, even though the Pennsylvania Constitution talks about, the, talks about education, which I'll get into, um, the door is effectively seemed closed to these kinds of challenges. They, they, they deemed them non-justiciable legal questions. Um, then there was this race discrimination case in, um, brought in federal court, which was headed to trial. And the United States Supreme Court said in an unrelated decision um, that when you sue a state in federal court uh, alleging race discrimination, you have to show intent. There's no disparate impact. You actually have to show intentional discrimination. And intentional discrimination is extraordinarily hard to show against the state government in this day and age. So that effectively closed the courthouse doors to that type of challenge. Um, and when that happened, excuse me, um, advocates went back to the political branch. Um, schools had long been underfunded. And there was a movement towards actually adequately funding schools. So I said that Pennsylvania doesn't actually ask how much our schools need. There's no goal of fully funding public schools. It's not as if each year the legislature says what do our students need and how we're going to get there. There was a brief period where they did this. And so in 2007, the state commissioned um, a study to finally determine, okay, okay, how much do our schools actually need so that every child can meet state standards? 
The answer was an additional $4.4 billion. The Pennsylvania schools needed an additional $4.4 billion. Um, at the time, funding education was a bipartisan, there was bipartisan agreement. And so for a few years, the legislature said, okay, we're not going to get to that $4.4 billion. We as a state will agree that we'll, we'll get to two, we'll fund $2.4 billion of it. And for three years, the state actually meaningfully increased funding for public schools, 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and then um, <clears throat> Governor Corbett came in and um, cut $850 million from public education funding. Um, so all that money that had gone in um, after this costing out study all went out, plus additional funding. It was just massive, massive cuts for public schools. Um, you know, the impacts were felt statewide. This is Philadelphia, um, and certainly there were huge cuts within Philadelphia, but there were huge cuts around the state um, because um, you know, the cuts were really targeted for the very things that funded lower wealth districts. Um, so in Philadelphia, for example, 23 schools had to be closed. Um, the state, the, the school district of Philadelphia stopped spending money on um, uh, heavily pared back at spending on capital upkeep, maintenance, the physical plant. And, you know, do these things matter? Well, this is a child in, in a Philadelphia school district in the Northeast, lower Northeast, who was in a school um, with, uh, where there were leaking pipes that hadn't been repaired. Um, in the ceiling that are causing leaks in the ceiling that was causing the paint to peel. It was dropping on his desk. He was eating the paint. The paint had lead in it and he suffered profound lead poisoning. Right? There is a teacher in Philadelphia that died from mesothelioma. Um, and they assume that her family believes it was from um, her classroom uh, at an elementary school in Philadelphia. Right? So all these things, they matter. Right? Um, so, um, uh, Tom Corbett makes these big cuts. Um, Tom Corbett loses an election. This is not a, you know, a partisan talk, but it is fair to say that anyone who lived through that election, um, in 2016 knows that, uh, or 2014, I should say, um, knows that, um, public education was the single biggest issue in the Wolf Corbett election. Um, so Tom Wolf comes in with a very ambitious proposal um, for public education, um, you know, came in talking about his understanding that schools are profoundly underfunded and proposed um, giving schools $2 billion over his first four years in office, um, including giving money specifically to the districts that were um, targeted for cuts um, uh, in, in the Corbett administration. Um, so $2 billion over four years is a down payment to adequately funding our public schools. Um, fortunately, after a very protracted budget struggle, some of you might remember this, um, we didn't have a state budget passed for well over a year. Instead of um, uh, $500 million in his first year, he got $350 million total over his first two years. And the money wasn't targeted to the districts that had been cut, it was just given to everyone. Um, after Governor Wolf's first six years in office, we've completed six years of his budget, um, he has increased, he has been able to secure about $700 million increase for public education, which sounds good. I mean, we spend a lot on public education because um, it's a big state. Um, when you count just inflation, that's actually a decrease from when he started in office. 
So we are still living with where we started, where we left Tom Corbett. We're still there in terms of um, state contributions to education. Um, something good happened, however, in, in all of this, which is um, in, in Governor Wolf's first year in office, the state passed something that's colloquially called the fair funding formula. Um, a new way to actually measure what school districts need and, and um, give them funding. So um, the fair funding formula, uh, which was enacted as, as, as sort of in the middle of that budget standoff, um, seeks to at least rationally measure from district to district, what are the needs of kids? Um, so the way it does that, it, it bases it on something called weighted students. Um, basically it looks at your student population and then it gives you bonuses for um, students, the, the number of students you have in poverty, the number of students you have in really acute poverty, um, the number of students you have learning English, things like that. Um, the, the trouble is, um, is that it's only the fair funding formula is only about how to split an existing pie, not how big the pie should be. And I'll get into that for a second, in a second. Um, you know what, this slide looks a little bit messed up. Sorry about all that weird, uh, that weird uh, animation. But um, so remember I talked to you about Radnor versus Upper Darby, right? Um, so um, Radnor, um, Again, 10.7% of students are economically disadvantaged. Upper Darby, uh, about 62%. Radnor, 3.4% English language learners and 10% in Upper Darby. Um, the way that this fair funding formula works is it, see, it tries to say not just how much are you spending per student, right? And the numbers I gave you before comparing Radnor to Upper Darby were just like on a pure basis of, of just per dollar per student, how much more does Radnor have more does Radnor have than Upper Darby. And I think um, Radnor was spending, I think 72% more than Upper Darby um, per student. The formula doesn't say how much are you spending per student. It says how much are you spending per weighted student. So the weighted students is the way the state says, okay, what are the actual relative needs of these districts? Once you add in these weights for kids learning English for number for kids in poverty. And so after you do all that, um, the difference between um, those districts is not 70%, it's 84%, right? So the, the gaps or the effective gaps really grow when you, when you look at the weights that the state uses in its fair funding formula. Um, the fair funding formula is that it was an important, um, an important victory for advocates in the state because finally we were gonna look at what districts actually what the characteristics of districts were, right? I said the state had been frozen in time that ice age where the fair funding formula was beginning to end that, right? But the thing, the problem is that the fair funding formula came with some really significant weaknesses, some really fundamental weaknesses. Uh, so what are those? Well, the first is, as I said, the fair funding formula tells you um, how much Radnor needs versus Upper Darby of the state pie but it doesn't actually tell you how big the state pie should be. It just says, if we're distributing a dollar, this is how much goes to Radnor, this is how much goes to William Penn, this is how much goes to Swarthmore, this is how much goes to district after district after district. But it doesn't tell you how much these districts actually need altogether. And so really, when I said at the beginning, there is no goal of fully funding public schools, there still is no goal of fully funding public schools. And so if the state has no goal of determining how big the pie should be and then making sure districts can meet it. 
then what happens is it's still left up to individual school districts, right? So you can have this formula, which says, this is how much Radnor is going to get versus William Penn versus Swarthmore versus whomever, right? But if you don't actually make sure the pie is big enough, then the only districts that will actually come up with the amount of funds that their students actually need are those districts that can afford it. So that was true before, and that's true now. Before the fair funding formula was enacted, and after the fair funding formula was enacted. We still don't say how big the pie should be in Pennsylvania. The second thing is that when they created the fair funding formula, remember I said 1991, we became stuck in an ice age over and over and over. We're just using 1991 demographics, right? So as of um, 2016, when this formula was enacted, we distributed about $5.5 billion according to those 1990, largely according to those 1991 demographics. Well, we still distribute that $5.5 billion according to those 1991 demographics. The only money that we actually put through the fair funding formula is the quote unquote new money. The money that was enacted, and I told you that Governor Wolf was able to secure $700 million. That $700 million goes through the fair funding formula. All the rest, the other $5.5 billion of basic education funding, that goes through um, the old 1991 demographic um, and it just continues in perpetuity. Um, if you actually started over and you say, you know, we're not going to use these 1991 demographics anymore. We're just going to put all the money through the fair funding formula. That tells you how much you need from district to district to district, at least the relative needs. Um, you would switch $1 billion, over $1 billion from district to district to district as you reallocated money. This is the whole harmless problem. Um, the trouble with that is as um, one of our colleagues, Susan Spickoff from Education Voters talks about is it creates a Hunger Games in Pennsylvania, the Hunger Games of school funding, because it's a zero sum game, right? So if we put all this money through this formula, I mean, that sounds great. And certainly that would benefit a lot of districts. Um, and here's how, here's how that would benefit. Um, so if we put all the money through the formula, Allentown, the Allentown School District, we had an additional $100 million right away right? $5,000 per student, right? Um, Johnstown, one of our clients in the school funding case, would get an additional $4,000 per child if all the money went through the formula. They are not getting their fair share of current funds. So you say, okay, that's great. Let's redistribute it, right? But because we're not saying how big the pie should be, it's a zero-sum game. And so those districts gain and these districts lose by the exact same amount, right? Any money that a district, that money goes to a poor district or a more underfunded district comes from another district, right? So, you know, uh, Allentown might gain $5,000 a student, but here's 10 districts that would lose $5,000 a student. And those districts, while certainly better off than Allentown, some of them might think, well, we're underfunded too. Because remember, the state's not actually saying how big the pie should be. It's only saying how we're going to distribute the existing money. And so that really creates this zero-sum game. That's the Hunger Games. If one district wants more, another district has to get less. Right? That is a construct of our state not actually saying that we're going to fully fund public schools. That is a deliberate decision made by the state of Pennsylvania. They do not have to do that, but they do it, and it pits district against district against district. If you want more, another district has to lose. Um, there's another problem with Hold Harmless, too. This will take me um, just a minute to explain. This is from um, somebody, David Masenka from the organization Power. Um, and um, on this chart, every dot 
on this scatter plot, every dot is a school district in the Commonwealth, one of our 499 school districts. Um, the, um, the horizontal, I'm sorry, the vertical line is how much per student funding you're getting from the state this year, just state funding alone, not state and local, just state funding. What's your per student funding? Um, the horizontal line is what your per student funding would be if we use the fair funding formula. All right, so vertical, how much you actually are getting, horizontal, how much you would be getting if we use the formula, all right? Um, now, if we did use the formula for all of our money, every district would be along that dotted line, right? Because um, how much you are getting and how much you should be getting would be the exact same, right? The formula says you should be getting $3,000 per student. You would be getting $3,000 per student, right? So every district, every dot would be somewhere along that dotted line. Um, what you see is the districts are all over the place. Now, if you're above the dotted line, you are getting more than, your, than, than the formula says you should get in Pennsylvania state classroom funding, basic education funding. If you're below the dotted line, you're getting less than you would expect, right? So again, above the line, you're benefiting from the, that hold, from hold harmless. From that ice age we talked about, you're above the line, you're benefiting. You're below the line, you're suffering. The median school district in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has, I think, about 11% um, kids of color. Um, if you have, um, if you're greater than the median number of kids of color, you're a brown dot. If you have less than the median number of kids of color, you're a yellow dot. Again, above the line, getting more than you'd expect. Below the line, getting less. Which is to say that, you know, not every underfunded district has a huge number of kids of color, but just about every district with a large number of kids of color is profoundly underfunded in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Um, and you know, when I when I go to other districts, districts that might be <clears throat> might benefit from hold harmless, um, that might benefit from those demographics being used over and over and over, and I tell them is we just can't function like this as a society. Something has to give here, um, and that could be we just start over, or it could be we adequately fund everyone. But this can't actually work. Um, you know, why does this matter? You know, um, standardized test results may not be the be all and end all of everything. There's a number of ways you can measure schools, but they certainly are an important measure. And um, what those show are that Pennsylvania students uh, are not doing great. Um, in eighth grade math, 67% of Pennsylvania students scored below proficient. 40% uh, of them scored below basic. Um, kids um, in high school, 35% um, are not proficient, or 34% are not proficient in algebra, 36 are not proficient in biology. Um, and all of those things are far, far, far worse for children of color and for low wealth kids, right? Those gaps we talked about that the state of Pennsylvania admitted at the very beginning, all these numbers are far worse for children of color and um, for um, low wealth children. But you know, maybe you don't like standardized tests. <clears throat> well, how about college graduation rates, college attendance rates? Um, it's the same thing. We have profound gaps in the number of kids actually going to college. And one of the things we found in our case, which I'll talk about is that in Pennsylvania, not only do we have huge gaps in the number uh, in, you know, from, a, from a, a poor kid to a, a wealthy kid um, going to college and graduating college, we also know is that a, a poor kid 
from a high spending school district is not only more likely in Pennsylvania to go to college because they've gotten those resources, they're more likely to graduate college. Um, so for these reasons and others, um, we filed a lawsuit against the state of Pennsylvania uh, to, try to, to try to take this system on. Um, <clears throat> that case um, was filed in 2014. And it is a, a case under the Pennsylvania um, state constitution. Um, the first count is under our state's education clause. So our education clause says the General Assembly shall provide for the maintenance and support of a thorough and efficient system of public education to serve the needs of the Commonwealth. The United States Constitution doesn't mention the word education, but our state, like just about every other state does. Um, every state constitution, I think save one, actually has an education clause in it. This is what ours says. Um, education clauses are really important to state constitutions. In fact, um, having an education clause was a condition uh, for readmission to the Union for the states of the former Confederacy. If they wanted to be readmitted to the Union, they had to add education clauses to their constitution because that's how important our framers thought education was. Um, so the case is alleging um, that the General Assembly is failing its duty under the education clause of the Pennsylvania Constitution. It's also alleging that the huge disparities in the basis of wealth in the Constitution are also illegal under our state's equal protection provisions. Um, we are um, suing on behalf of um, six school districts, including the William Penn School District in Delaware County, um, we, uh, and as well as three urban school districts, Wilkes-Barre, uh, Lancaster and Johnstown, as well as two smaller school districts in Schuylkill and Carbon Counties, Panther Valley and Shenandoah Valley, as well as the NAACP, Pennsylvania, and the Pennsylvania Association of Rural and Small Schools. This is an issue that affects everybody, and we have a cross-section of Pennsylvania to bring this case. Um, we are suing anyone that can make a difference, everyone, anyone with responsibility to make a difference. But, you know, I should say also, um, uh, we are also representing um, a number of families as well in the case. Um, but we are suing anyone um, that can make a difference. Um, so that is the governor. Um, next to him is the secretary of education and below him is the, the, legislate, the legislative leaders in the Pennsylvania House and the Pennsylvania Senate. Um, so we filed this case in 2014, as I said, um, but I told you earlier that a lot of these, that these cases had earlier failed in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. So we lost in the Commonwealth Court because they said, hey, you know, there's already these decisions in Pennsylvania Supreme Court that say public education funding is a matter for um, policy decisions. We as a legislature cannot determine how much schools need. Um, and, you know, if you want some relief, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court is going to have to tell us because otherwise this case is barred. So we went to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and they agreed with us. So in 2016, we argued in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, we said there is nowhere else for these kids to go. Um, and um, in 2017, we got a decision saying constitutional promises must be kept. And so they were, we're not ruling on the merits of the case, but we're ruling that these school districts, these families, these organizations have a chance to show that there is a there, there's a constitutional standard in Pennsylvania and that as a result of inadequate funding school districts can't need it. The school districts can't give kids the resources they know that those kids need um, to get out the back door ready for college, ready for a family sustaining career. So 
we are asking the court, we're now back in Commonwealth Court, um, where we are asking the court to declare the current system of funding unconstitutional, order the legislature to cease using that system, and to create a system that actually enables all students to meet state, state academic standards, right? A system which actually seeks to answer the question, how much do our students need? Um, what have we heard from the respondents so far? We're not actually at a trial yet, we're about to be, but we've been in discovery with them and in depositions with them for, um, for a number of years, or for, yeah, for, for about two years. And so we have a good idea of some of the things that they're talking about. Um, um, they're going to say, you know, uh, Pennsylvania already spends enough on, on public education that if you look at all the money we spend on public education, we're above the national average. You look at our average, our students score well on national standardized test scores. And it is true that if you add in local funding and you just take an average, Pennsylvania looks okay in terms of how it spends money and okay. Averages, of course, don't tell you that much, right? If, if uh, Bill Gates walks into a bar on average, everyone in that bar is a billionaire, right? But that doesn't really actually give you a whole lot of information about the financial well-being, the economic well-being of the people in that bar, right? In Pennsylvania, we have some districts that have significant wealth and that can give their districts, you know, their, their children, the education they deserve, right? They spend well on public schools. Southeastern Pennsylvania suburb, suburban districts, um, often have very nice public schools, right? But that doesn't tell you about what's the reality of what's going on in William Penn or Upper Darby or Southeast Delco or Chester, right? But they're gonna argue that regardless. They're gonna argue, hey, our students do well in the NAEP overall, presumably ignoring what the Department of Education has already said, which is that, oh, you know, we actually have some of the biggest gaps between rich and poor in the entire country, between black and white in the entire country. Um, they're also going to argue the new formula that we talked about, the fair funding formula, will eventually solve all these problems, ignoring the fact that um, $5.5 billion is stuck in those 1991 demographics. And um, they're also going to argue that, you know, in each school district, regardless of how, how underfunded it is, you know, pick the William Penn School District. William Penn School District has students that go to college. The William Penn School District has the National Honor Society. The William Penn School District has kids that get scholarships to college. And those kids that do well have the same opportunities as the kids that don't do well. So therefore, it must be something else. It must be the family. It must be the culture. It must be poverty. It must be anything else but us, right? something else. Just funding is related to the last point. Funding and outcomes are not related because some kids succeed, which is a truly ridiculous argument, but we think that's what they're going to say. Um, what, um, what do we need to prove? Well, the first thing we need to do is we need to establish what exactly the constitutional standard is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. What we believe is that every child is entitled to a high-quality public education, a contemporary high-quality public education. That's what we think the Pennsylvania Constitution requires, and we hope the court will agree with us. What does that mean? It means that in today's day and age, no matter how a student comes in in kindergarten, that school districts need the resources to take that kid and give them the support they need so that when they walk out the door in 12th grade, they're ready to succeed in college and in a family-sustaining career. 
So that's the first thing. We need to establish a constitutional standard. Um, we then need to show that it has not been met and that it requires more money to meet it. And we also need to show that the huge disparities in funding are not justified. Um, so um, where are we now? Um, um, we have a trial scheduled. I'm sorry, those, those names won't be right. Those names won't have any meaning to you, but um, um, we've completed about 100, uh, we've completed discovery, exchanged um, well over 100,000 pages of documents, had 70 depositions, number of expert reports, motions for summary judgment were filed, on and on and on and on and on and on. But the path to trial has now finally been cleared. And we actually have a tentative trial start date in this case, which is September 9th, 2021. Um, we will show at trial that all students can learn and that funding matters, right? That funding matters because funding buys resources, right? Funding is not, our districts are not after funding for funding's sake. Funding means small class sizes. Funding means preschool. Funding means counselors. Funding means social workers. Funding means safe, adequate, modern facilities. Funding means STEM. Funding means technology, right? Funding means the education that every child is entitled to, to live up to their potential. Um, that is really the core of our case, that funding matters because this educators know what experts know kids need and these districts can't give it to them um so how much do school districts actually need um well also as part of this lawsuit um, um i told you that um for a few years um in um 2008 2009 2010 the state actually was this brief period determining how much schools needed there was a state law this is what the state law said um, Department of Education shall determine an adequacy target for each school district by calculating the sum of the following, and the, the sum of the following was the formula that the state had enacted. Um, so they calculated these targets. And so each year you could just go on the Department of Education's website and, um, and, um, and see what the department said the shortfall was in your school district. Maybe it was zero, right? But you could go in and see okay, how much do, um, do our schools need? Cumulatively, by the time those three years were over, um, the state was still short about $4.5 billion. Um, again, you could just, in fact, you still can just look, go get this spreadsheet. It's just, it is not a secret. The, the state of Pennsylvania said that as of the 2010-11 school year, schools were short $4.5 billion. Um, so, um, the, the state law also said, and I think I mentioned this, that you know, we were that the state was going to contribute $2.5 billion, $2.4 billion towards its goal of fully funding public schools. Um, and so it said it, and it also said it's the goal of the Commonwealth to review and meet state funding targets by fiscal year 2013-14. They just deleted that off the books, right? That was deleted. Um, but the funny thing is, they didn't actually take away the formula. The first, this formula is still in the books. Department of Education shall determine an adequacy target for each school district by calculating some of the following. Still state law. Um, all that happened was they deleted their, their requirements to actually fund it. But that calculation, that adequacy target that the Department of Education had been calculating every year um, was no longer done by the Department of Education. They just stopped doing it. 
So as part of this case, we calculated it for them. We had an expert to run the numbers that the state law says shall determine what's the adequacy target is for each school district. And the number is, as of the most recent data, Pennsylvania schools are underfunded by $4.6 billion. Um, if you go to fundourschoolspa.org, which is a website we developed for the trial, you can actually see district by district. What are, what are, what's the underfunding for each school district? For the districts in this case, the numbers are profound. Um, per student, um, all of our districts in the case are underfunded by at least $3,800 per child. Boy, Penn School District, again, um, close by $4,800 per kid. Uh, here's how that looks in Delaware, because you can see it for every school district, Delaware County. So according to the state, um, Garnet Valley, Radnor, Rose Tree Media, Swarthmore, and Marble Newtown's just about there, um, have adequately funded public schools, according to this state. Now, it doesn't include capital needs. It doesn't actually include special education. But, but general education funds, um, if, you, if you put Haverford in there, is very close to. There's a number of districts in Delaware County that the state thinks are, are where public schools should be. And then those same districts that had those really high tax rates are really underfunded according to state law, right? So um, William Penn, $4,800 short per child, $28 million each year in recurring funding. Chester Upland, $5,000, $35 million overall. Southeast Delco, $5,800 per child. Upper Darby, $5,900 per child every year. The state believes, according to the state's own numbers, these school districts are underfunded, right? So um, the, the inadequacy is profound, right? Imagine if you went to the, to the superintendent of the Upper Darby School District and said, what would you do with $78 million? Imagine the programs that that superintendent could put into place, right? For his kids that are coming in behind starting in kindergarten, right? Um, but the, adequacy, the, the, the inadequacy is also very large. And so I just want to just quickly mention that, you know, um, and then I'll, I'll finish up, which is that um, I talked earlier about the problems with whole harmless, right? That we're stuck in this, this ice age. But because the, the, the inadequacy is larger than just switching money from district to district, we actually need to grow the pie. Here's a way to look at that. So if we use the fair funding formula for all the money, right? We ran all the money through the formula. The William Penn School District would gain $5.3 million. That William Penn School District needs that $5 million, right? Another district would lose. Or other districts would lose. William Penn would gain $5 million. But according to state law, William Penn is actually $28 million behind on adequacy, right? The first number is just if we redistributed the existing pie. But that second number is what it shows you is that we actually need to grow the pie. If we want everyone to be adequately funded, we can't simply redistribute existing funds. We actually need to spend more on public schools. Education funding shouldn't be a zero-sum game. We have to end the hunger game. Um, so um, what we hope is that the lawsuit, um, you know, will accomplish what we hope. What we hope the lawsuit accomplishes what we know it's accomplished in other states. Um, and um, because there have been a lot of um, uh, lawsuits in other states under their other states' education clauses. Um, those lawsuits have been studied. And what those studies show is that successful lawsuits bring about more revenue for the districts that need it particular, uh, in particular, and that over the long haul, it increases academic results in those districts. Again, standardized test scores are important. They may not be the be all and end all, but they're an important metric. And what they show is that if you put money in after these lawsuits, 
students do better, right? It's not a shock because funding means programs. Um, and we also hope that after years of a political impasse in Harrisburg, that the, the cudgel of a court decision will once and for all um, break this political impasse. Um, so what can you do? Um, <clears throat> and then we'll open up for discussion. The first thing is um, um, we, uh, went along with our partners at the Education Law Center, and I should, I don't know if I mentioned the Education Law Center, and they are our, um, they are our colleagues in this case, our co-counsel in this case, um, and, um, and um, the Education Law Center and our organization um, created, jointly created a website, fundourschoolspa.org, um, where you can get resources about the lawsuit. You can see what each district is underfunded by. Um, you can see stories of underfunding. We actually started a podcast um, um, called Underfunded, um, um, which um, we, can, we can send everyone when, when, the, when this is over. Um, it's a great podcast um, done by two um, freelance journalists just talking about the, the, stories of under, the stories and the reality of underfunding across Pennsylvania. Um, and so that will be our sort of our, um, our hub of information as we get closer to trial and then during trial itself. Um, there's also some statewide campaigns that again, our organization and the Education Law Center um, are, are involved in um, and, and are part of, and that includes uh, PA Schools Work, which is a statewide campaign um, to bring political pressure on the legislature to fix this once and for all. Um, and there are things you can do. Um, you can um, volunteer to share your own school funding story. Um, obviously, if it's, you know, <clears throat> Swarthmore is in general a well-funded district, um, but um, those with experiences in underfunded schools, um, you know, are, are, are signing up to talk about what that actually means in practical terms. Um, you can write a letter to the editor of your newspaper, which um, Alex um, talked about at the beginning. Um, you can email your legislators, although um, I will be frank, which is that your your two legislators, <laughs> and I think I think someone from I saw someone from Senator Kearney's office might might be here. Um, Representative um, Kruger. Yes, I'm here. Senator, yeah, so Representative Kruger and and uh, Senator Kearney are friends of public education and friends to this issue. Um, so I don't I don't know that you need to you need to pressure them to support additional funding for public schools. I think they're they're both pretty strong advocates for it. Um, but you can organize a presentation like this one. Um, you know, the, the reality of Zoom um, is that it's easy just to, to gather your friends and hey, maybe in the maybe in the near future this can be done in person again. Um, but you know, if you can get 20 people into a into a, a room um, virtually or in person, we'll come and talk to your organization about um, about underfunding. Um, and you know, the bottom line is get involved, talk about what this means. Like um, school funding can mean can be abstract, but it is not abstract in reality. In reality, it means teachers for students. That's what it means. It means books for students. It means technology for students. Um, so um, with that, I will end it. Um, um, we'll send um, we'll send a copy of this presentation as well. Um, and, and I know Alex is uh, going to um, um, is going to uh, post it, uh, post the, the video. Um, but that's my contact, contact information. You know, this presentation was because um, Susan Legros just reached out to me and asked me if we could do this. And um, so if you're in another, um, you know, professional organization or something like that, and you want to come do it, just let us know. I'll be happy to, to work on a time. So with that, I will open up the questions and, and thank you so much for your time and your patience.
Yes, thank you, Dan. Uh, I'm going to do the sign language for applause. Thank you so much, Dan, for for uh, that very concise uh, presentation. I think within my heart, I, there's a little bit of breaking. There's a little bit of uh, uh, hope for what may come this fall. A little bit of anger, and a little bit also reflecting on my own childhood in the educational system, and hoping for the best uh, as we look towards the future. Um, yes, so I, I want to make sure I name friends that this this uh, this presentation and this time is being recorded. So if you are to ask a question that you don't want to be a part of the recording, please let me know in the chat. I will make a note of that um, so that when I post this recording, I can maybe clip out your question if you would like to remain anonymous. Otherwise, I know there is a few questions that have been asked in the chat. And I would like uh, each one of you to be able to ask your questions that you wrote. Um, but I'll begin with one that was kind of written in uh, anonymous. Uh, so, so to Dan, I want to know if you could speak to uh, any of this. Um, the, the comment that became a question is that, uh, of course, this whole presentation um, uh, from this person's experience, you know, is revealed in how it affects their own district and the work they've been doing in, own, in their own district. And I think it's also compounded by how many of the citizens do not feel well equipped for school board service to ben, then even have those tough conversations about uh, it's not what we need, it's what we need to cut. So when you add that, you know, extra layer, um, there seems to me to be possibly a connection there. And I wanted to know if there's anything if you could speak to about the question of how, um, how could the school boards um, possibly contribute or maybe what are some of the functions in this broken system at the moment mm -hmm. and if there's anything you could share or illuminate when it comes to that. Sure. So, um, so first of all, being a school board member is an extraordinarily difficult thing. Um, those people that volunteer for that service, I really commend them. I think it's, um, it's a tough job and in Pennsylvania, it's a volunteer job. Um, despite the fact that sometimes school board directors are essentially close to a full-time job. I see it in Philadelphia where our school board, um, and we, <clears throat> we had a state-run school board for a long time, but uh, we now have a local school board. Um, and our school board meetings go till midnight sometimes, you know, from 4 p.m. to midnight, and it's all a volunteer job. And it, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, and school board directors are particularly if their districts are, um, aren't blessed to have, you know, shopping malls and big houses are putting in just an untenable position because a lot of what you're doing is just trying to, to eke out what you can from a really unfair system. Um, you know, I think that um, a lot of times school board members get a lot of blame um, when reality they're handcuffed. You know, again, in any sane system, a school, a, a superintendent who has been entrusted to, to be the educational leader of a system um, would go to the school board and say, this is what we need. And if it's justified, they would get it. And that's actually what happens in a lot of, of well-funded districts, right? And the school board is, is much more just an oversight body, um, but it just can't happen in, in underfunded districts. You just can't, you can only get so much blood from a stone. The William Penn School District, in the entire state of Pennsylvania, I think, so we have 499 districts. I think they have um, the third highest tax rate out of 496 in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. 
right? despite the fact that it's not a high wealth area. There's nothing else for that school board to do in terms of raising funds. There's just not. And in fact, they get a lot of pressure because, um, you know, there's a lot of senior citizens in that in that area as well who are on fixed incomes. And so the, the answer is really that the state has to step in and do its job. Um, you know, in terms of sort of are people equipped? I mean, I think that it's, it's a, that's, it's a question um, a little bit beyond my pay grade. I think that we, you know, I think being a school member is a tough job. We can make it a lot easier if we gave them adequate funding so that they could function more in a traditional oversight role over superintendent and an educational program as opposed to what they are now, which is the people that, um, the people that, uh, you know, are often giving superintendent or giving um, school communities the really unpleasant reality that taxes are going up again. And taxes might be going up and still not actually adequately funding um, their schools. Um, hold on one second. I hear a vacuum in my house, which I'm going to try to stop. This is the reality of um, of um, doing a presentation at home. Um, Dan, can uh, I follow up with yep. uh, one more question to that? So if I interpreted this question. Oh, I, I'm sorry. I muted you. Sorry. Fine. I meant to mute myself to stop hearing the vacuum. Sorry. <laughs> you're fine. And we can't hear it. So I, I think okay, you have okay. a good compressor on it. Okay. Um, uh, if I interpreted the statement and then the question correctly is that, you know, if you do live in an area where you could serve on a school board that, you know, may have really long hours and you're excited to contribute, but then you come to see the unveiling of how broken the system is. So then you take those hours that you have and go, well, my, my community also has a charter system and, you know, I might as well spend my time there because this is too big of a problem mm -hmm. <laughs> to try to give that many hours of just hard work of making hard decisions that, right, it's just cyclical. Um, I don't know if that's, it's a little bit more of a statement, but I, I do wonder if there's, if there's anything you could speak to that, uh, anything you could say to that. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think that I, well, I certainly think that the way that the, both the, the combination of underfunding schools creates just a lot of um, cynicism and, and distrust and um, of public institutions. And, you know, what we know about charter schools is that in general, in Pennsylvania, charter schools perform no better than district schools. Um, when you look at the kids that they're educating, um, you know, they're, they're and cyber charter schools are for their own separate world and, and are just um, far worse. But um, in general, brick and mortar schools don't perform any better than, than regular schools. Um, I do think that we've created this crazy system where we keep, you know, we, um, we have desperate parents trying to get, do the best for their kids. And so, you know, when you see a charter school that might have a building that looks nicer or newer, it's very understandable that a parent might um, opt for that. I think, again, in reality, though, what we know is that charter schools don't do any better. The other problem with charter schools, you know, you, you can be pro-charter school or con, but the, the problem is the way we fund them in Pennsylvania. And so we fund charter schools in such a way that they actually hurt the district school where that kid comes from. So we've created this crazy system where we allow parents to go to charter schools, which, you know, again, you can be for or against charter schools. I think that's a good thing or a bad thing. But if you want to have a system with charter schools, you shouldn't do it in such a way that it hurts the district they leave behind. And that's what we've done because when that funding, funding leaves that district, when a kid leaves, 
So if, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, student one leaves um, and goes to a charter school, that funding follows that student. But the expenses that the district has don't actually follow that student because the district still has to um, heat its schools, still has to run buses, right? Unless all those kids are in one class, it still has to keep teachers. And so um, districts actually do bad. And when I say districts, it means the kids left behind do poorly. And that's, again, a function of our school funding system. So um, we really have created this system where we sort of, um, we disinvest in, in public resources, we disinvest in, disinvest in public institutions, I should say. And, um, and these parents desperate to do something for their kids. And, and so again, whether, whether we should, whether charter schools are good or bad, it just, it, um, it really just kind of comes back to the same issue, which is that our public institutions are underfunded and that includes charter schools. Um, charter yeah. schools are underfunded too. Good. Yeah. It reminds me of what you said earlier in your presentation of that mm -hmm. it's about the pie needing to get larger and we're not having that conversation or we need to start having that conversation. Uh, friends, I have other questions that I have written down, but if you would like to express your own voice and share your own questions uh, using your own voice, uh, please feel free to unmute yourself and do so. Um, and I saw Susan, do you want me to answer? I, I, I can answer Susan's. Do you want to ask your question? Well, I think you answered it in part. I mean, so you're not trying to prove discrimination because the test is too hard. You're trying to prove inadequacy <laughs> and, and failure to conform with the requirements of the Pennsylvania Constitution. So then is that like a preponderance of the evidence test or, you know, I, I mean, there's got to be some sort of weighting and I'm not clear. Sure. So, well, the court. yeah, so, well, so, so um, in terms of your question, so we're not showing discriminatory intent, but right. we are showing under the Equal Protection Clause that the system is irrational um, in huge gaps from district to right. district. And so the first thing we have to do in for our equal protection standard is um, we believe that in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, education is a fundamental right. <clears throat> That's never been clearly decided by Pennsylvania courts. Um, but if it is a fundamental right or an important right, so another sort of intermediate standard in Pennsylvania, um, then the huge disparities from district to district to district have to be justified by the state to a pretty strong standard. Mm -hmm. They have to say, why is it on one side of a school district border you know, a kid has far different education than a kid on the other side of the post reporter, you know, a mile away. Why are their experiences so different? And those, those disparities have to be justified. And so we're going to prove those disparities exist. And then actually the burden is going to be on the state to justify those disparities, depending on how exacting that review will be, will be dependent on whether the court agrees with us that education is an important right or a fundamental right, which we certainly believe it is. Um, so there'll be a sort of a back and forth um, under the under the adequacy clause, we have to prove um, that there's this state standard of you know what's the, what does high quality education entail, right? And we have to prove um, it's a preponderance of the evidence standard, but um, but we have to prove uh, it's it's a I mean it's a, it's a more complicated that that part of it is a more complicated legal question because there's um, some cases which suggest in Pennsylvania that when you when you um, 
bring a constitutional violation, you have to prove it by clear and convincing evidence. Or um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a complicated question, but what we have to show is for our adequacy claim under the Pennsylvania Education Clause, as opposed to the disparity claim under equal protection provisions, we have to show that the standard is not being met. And at least in part, it's not being met just because there's a lack of funding for public schools. So we have to establish that causal connection. Um. <clears throat> I've encouraged participants as well to use the raise hand option in the reactions button. Uh, one of the questions I saw in the chat, Dan, was from Walter, and that was speaking to the, one of the initial graphs you had at the beginning, at the beginning of the presentation, that showed Texas and Florida were also among those uh, some of the uh, the states with lower spending on education, and the question was. Um, are the test results of a state like Texas and Florida, is it different, any different than Pennsylvania? Or is there a di direct relationship between uh, state spending and overall state results? I do wonder if sure. that also includes maybe the kind of the disparity specifically that PA is wrestling with and if there's mm -hmm. similar problems as well in Texas and Florida with that. Sure. So I, you know, I only know, I don't know the very specifics of Texas and Florida, but what I can say in terms of the connection between spending and achievement is that um, there was in the academic research, we'll start with this. Someone said to you, does money matter in education, right? Is there a connection between spending and achievement? And you told that person, well, here's what money would buy this school district. It would buy them five new teachers to cut their class sizes way down. And it would buy them books that each kid could take one home. And, um, you know, do you think that will have an impact on those kids? The answer would be, most people would say, well, of course, of course. I mean, more teachers, lower class sizes, more direct instruction, more tailored instruction for kids, maybe some reading specialists, maybe some counselors. I mean, um, but in the academic research, um, in the sort of the 80s, and 90s, there was this very simplistic um, research that was done and published and regurgitated over and over. It said, oh, there's not really a connection between money and outcomes. There's not a connection between money and outcomes. In the last 10 years, that's pretty much been obliterated. Um, where basically every, every um, researcher worth their salt uh, now acknowledges that yes, of course money has a direct impact on on results on achievement because for i mean it's, it's i mean it's common sense right but when you actually look at the numbers um that spending is related to achievement for all of the obvious reasons um, that's not to say other things don't have an impact you know other things are going to have an impact but how much resources a kid has does make a big difference um so i don't know exactly i don't know where texas and florida are i know that florida there's, um, there were, there was um, an attempt in Florida to amend the state constitution to try to bring a case like this. Um, and let I, what I understand is that the, the Florida Supreme Court read the new constitutional amendment in Florida um, in a very narrow way to essentially eliminate the possibility of a lawsuit like this one in Florida. Um, so, so I, you know, I don't know the specifics of Florida and Texas, but I do know that. In education policy at this point, it's 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 well settled that um, the connection between uh, the connection between spending and achievement. Great, thank you, Dan. 
I see Charlotte's hand is up. Yeah, hi, Dan. I had a question uh, specifically about uh, the Chester Uplands District and its current situation where sure. uh, it's not been running. It's, I mean, it's been run by the state, a, a state uh, court appointed receiver for a few years because of financial stress, management, et cetera, and is now uh, potentially facing the loss of its uh, public schools completely yep. to uh, to uh, the charter uh a large charter organization that's bidding for them basically that already runs several schools. Uh, so how would your suit affect this, if at all, or is your organization involved in the case in Chester? I know it's being uh, fought in court, imposed in court uh, right now, this bid to uh, go basically up to a hundred percent charters, which would be one of the first in the country, one of the first districts in the country to uh, suffer this fate. So the suit wouldn't really impact that specific case. So we're familiar with that. Our, our organization, again, also in partnership with the Education Law Center, is representing a number of community members in Chester Upland trying to um, fight some of that. Um, it, it wouldn't, practically speaking, impact the case, except for that Chester Upland, uh, you know, the city of Chester, a profoundly underfunded, a profoundly poor place, a profoundly poor place. And so... Um, when you actually look at their needs, um, again, still a district that has a lot, a lot of needs, um, and also has the biggest, most aggressive charter school operator in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, it's, it's a mess. It's a mess. Um, and the state of course has been running it for years and is now, um, yeah, taking bids to, um, or a receiver is taking bids to essentially charterize the whole district. Um, it's an extraordinarily problematic thing um, to not have essentially a true public education system in um, in an entire city. Um, but it does not have much of a connection to this specific case. And like, if we won in this case, that would not solve the problems of the Chester Upland School Well, But would it help Chester Upland if you won? I mean, in terms I mean, it would of- give them more money if, if, well, I should say, if, if all schools were funded adequately, it would give the Chester, it would give Chester Upland more funding. I would say that, that Chester Upland is specifically hurt more than I think any district in the state by how we fund charter schools. Because, you know, again, they've got this taken institution that's historically been disinvested. You, you create a shiny, well-marketed charter school that is just pulling children out one by one by one. That's that charter school is now heavily marketing in Philadelphia, is it actually now to, to try to get Philadelphia kids to go. And um, and so the way that we find charter schools probably hurts Chester more than anybody else because they just, they're getting just, they're losing so much money um, that they can't really recoup. So it would help them in the sense that if we won and we and the, the state adequately funded public schools, we think that Chester would get, Chester Upland would get significantly more funding. Uh, but practically speaking, if, the process is the process could still go the wrong way for Chester Upland in terms of a, a, a working public school system, uh, even if we won. Well, thank you. Uh, it seems like a very difficult situation without a lot of hope in it right now. Yeah, it, it's a it's a mess. It's it's, it's a mess. Um, I see. Uh... Joan's hand is up, and then I see Sarah. 
So you're muted. Sarah was first. Okay, go ahead, Sarah. I gotta find the mute button. Um, I, not <laughs> to um, add uh, insult to injury, but just based on the last conversation around um, privatization, I, t uh, Senator Carney is on the education committee and on appropriations. And this session, there was a pretty dramatic shift in the, the membership of the education committee, pretty much driven by one donor, Jeff Yaz, um, to make the committee um, full of members who are less moderate and more supportive of privatization, charters, all of that. So I, I mean, we are we're in a scary place, um, <clears throat> and I. Um, so it remains to be seen how things will turn out, but it, the conversations like this are incredibly important. And so hosting meetings to let people know what's happening um, and that this you know, does have a larger impact. Um, and even districts like Radnor now has their first application for um, a charter because you know, schools are having a, a hard time um, because they're not adequately funded. Uh, anyway, um, I'll get off my soapbox. I didn't want to make it political, but there are also when we talk about, you know, needing the legislature to respond. Um, you know, the reality is there's a party that's in the majority and one who's in the minority and votes matter, control matters, um, and people's position on the importance of public education matters. Um, so the fact that everybody's staying informed here is is a really great thing. So thank you for that. Yes, thank you, Sarah. Um, also, Dan and friends, I'm seeing the time here and we're at 426. Uh, I'll let uh, Joan, please take the next question. If you have any uh, departing comments or questions, uh, please write them in the chat. I will uh, share here the all the information I have gotten from Dan. And then I'll also speak to, again, that Google form um, that I have, uh, uh, that I want to share a bit more information on. So go ahead, Joan. Was there someone else besides me who was asking a question? I don't believe so. Okay. So my question has to do with the issue. And it's so this, this is probably slightly off the topic that you're here for in some ways, but I don't know whether the lawsuit will help in any way. Uh, and it goes to the school board thing, but it goes also to the school receiver. Why isn't the receiver stuff set up to support the community in strengthening things like the school board? So you can say, I don't know, and that's a great idea. And that's all you need to say. I just, it, this has been driving me nuts. For, this is the second, at least the second time we've been in, I'm in Chester. This is at least the second time we've been in receivership. And we still don't have capacity in our city for people to do the service that they need to be doing um, for the school board. I mean, you know, it is a matter of discernment and of understanding budgets and of understanding the needs. And I'm at my wit's end about where I go to figure out how to, how to help the city how to help the city, how to help the state rethink how it does receivership. I go that for Philadelphia as well, which also went, had a series of receiverships as well. And I didn't see that they were getting any more help than Chester was. So 
Anyway, that's my soapbox. Sorry. No, I, I let me just answer it um, for Philadelphia, for what could because my colleagues again we, we represent and so our organization had a long has had a long history in representing families in Chester and trying to um, help things there. But you know, I don't want I I I personally know more about Philadelphia. So the history of the school reform commission in Philadelphia, I think, is um, from its very beginning. It's very first state appointed receiver was not someone that seemed particularly interested in reinvigorating public education in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia. And, you know, um, that's in, you know, on our school reform commission. So we had this in Philadelphia, we had a school reform commission, a five, met, five member, member appointed body, which has had historically some good members and some terrible members. Um, but I don't think that the state appointed those people to reinvigorate public education. That's all I will say. And, and so um, I don't think that's the goal. I don't think that's the goal. Um, and um, yeah, but that's all. So I will leave, I'll leave the Chester discussion to my colleagues um, because they know more about it than I do. Um, but I don't think emergency powers, the, you know, the, the emergency managers um, model is, not to say that it's never appropriate, but in general, emergency you know emergency managers um, um, are not they're not uh, they're not coming out the back end with an with a, an adequately funded public school. Generally, they're seeking to make budget cuts. That's what I'm saying. So, thank you, Dan. Sure. And friends, as we near uh, that time that we want to make sure we committed to being here together, but also being aware of the time we have taken, uh, we I have shared in the chat um, a Google form. If you'd like to share your support, uh, support after this informational meeting, go and check out that link. You'll see the current draft letter we have. We will ask for your name if you're attached to a faith community. Um, uh, to name that or any titles that you may have. And of course, um, how did you hear about this session? Um, by giving us your email, uh, we'll possibly send you an email uh, for any follow-ups. Um, of course, this is being recorded, so we'll be sharing this with our partners at the Interfaith Council of Southern Delaware County. And of course, uh, found um, for our congregation of Swarthmore Presbyterian Church, if you belong to a different faith community, um, or if you are just a community member that wants to have access to this video, if you were to sign up that Google form and when we contact you, you can just let us know that. We don't mind sharing that video with you afterwards if you would like to have access to that. Uh, um, thank you all again for uh, being present. Save that link. Make sure you save Dan's email. Um, uh, and thank you again, Dan, and for Jonathan, and for all the hard work of the Public Interest Law Center for being here with us. Thank you for those who are uh, colleagues of the Interfaith Council. And I see a few hands going up. Yes, Cindy, is there anything you'd like to add? I don't know. Uh, and then I see a few members from Southmore Presbyterian Church. Thank you all for being here again as well. Um, if I can ask you all for a good uh, sign language applause. Thank you, my friends, for being here today. Uh, any closing comments you'd like to add, Dan? No, oh, thank you. Thank you guys very much. And uh, just uh, someone asked about presence of the trial. Could people be there? We don't know yet. We're, we'll find out more in about a month. And once we do, we'll be sure to let everyone know. Great. Thank you, Dan. 
Thank you, Thank you all my friends, and we'll, we'll be in touch soon. You take care. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode recorded for May 23rd, 2021. Sponsored by Adult Formation, an educational lawsuit informational meeting led by the Public Interest Law Center. We'll see you soon, and may the peace of Christ be with you.